This is Friday Night Frights, brought to you by Starburst Magazine. Hello and welcome to Friday Night Frights, the weekly horror podcast from Starburst Magazine. I'm John Tolson and tonight is a Scream Queen special. Ladies there, you there, then you see. Actress Susan Lanier, star of Wes Craven's original 1977 classic The Hills Have Eyes, is back on our screens in a new horror movie called Cut. After appearing in classic TV shows of the 1970s, including Policewoman, Barnaby Jones and Welcome Back Cotter, Suze went on to become a singer, photographer and music video director based in Los Angeles. In Cut, the new slasher from up-and-coming director David Roundtree, Suze plays herself as an ex-horror ingenue stalked by an unknown killer. I caught up with Suze to find out more about Cut, about working with Wes Craven and her many projects in music, photography and film. back in Texas and you wanted to go to New York to Broadway but you ended up working in television in Los Angeles in the 1970s so how did you go from Texas to Hollywood well you know I think that um, life actually will um, dictate your journey and so um, the, the things that happen the occurrences in your life dictate your the steps you take. I guess it's more like problem solving. This particular thing happens to you, and then you and you, then you deal with it, and then the resolution of the problem is that you end up some, you know, doing so, you know, uh, taking steps to you. First of all, I had the goal always to be a New York actress. I really hadn't thought about being a Hollywood actress. Uh, then, uh, but I had a radio show when I was 15 in high school and I was working at radio stations. And back then there was no internet, but they had this huge book on, uh, in the radio station in Dallas. And I was in high school and I wrote all these radio station, um, uh, uh, advertising agencies telling them I could type and I wanted to move to New York to study. And would, could I, would they, could I get a job interview? Well, this 
man at a big advertising agency in New York wrote me back and said, if you can type as fast as you say, uh, thank God my father made me take typing. Um, uh, if you can type as fast as you say, we will guarantee you a job when you get here making $80 a week. And well, back then that was, that was pretty good, particularly for a 15 year old. So by the time I was 16. So I left for New York very young. Like I was, you know, I don't even think I was 18 by the time I got there. I turned 18 in the village, I remember. And, um, uh, and he, they had hired me um, as soon as I got there. And I could type really quickly. So I, I uh, knew that the best teacher to go to was HB Studio, Uta Hagen, Herbert Berghoff Studio. And so I lived near there and studied there. And then I, I got a, jo- a job also at NYU and um, started going to school there. Well, when I was uh, around 19, um, I had a I, 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 you know, back then people were, I was living in the village. What can I say? And, um, and I got pregnant. So I had a baby and he had a couple of health issues that I had to deal with. And it was difficult for me to be, um, I was, I married, um, his father, but that wasn't, I knew that was not going to work. So I went back to Dallas to be with my family to get over this crisis, this health crisis of my child. And while I was there, last of the Red Hot Lovers, equity play was coming through town. And Ronald Reagan's daughter, Maureen, was playing Bobby Michelle, and she had to drop out of the play. And since I was local, um, the director hired me to take over her part. And I did a national tour of that play with my four-month-old baby in a, in a suitcase practically. And, um, so via that ICM, I got another, uh, uh, production of last of the red hot lovers playing that same role and ICM who represented Pat Paulson from laughing saw my work and asked me if I would come to LA and let ICM represent me. So it was like, you know, having the baby, I was devastated to have to leave New York, but the best thing that ever happened was ha- was for me was to end up back in Dallas, and then getting fired was devastating, but that allowed me to go be in a play, which I wouldn't have tried to be in, which brought me to L.A., you know, um, and and I was guest starring on Happy Days the first week I got here. So, uh, you know, so it's the way... You know, it's the circumstances in your life that you think, oh, my God, this is the worst thing that ever happened, which sometimes can end up being the best thing that ever happened. So what was it like working in television in the 1970s? It was great. You know, um, it's uh, in theater. I love theater because it's so spontaneous and you can't take it back. You know, you have to be in the moment. And on television, um, I, I was, uh, it's pretty fast paced, but there's a lot of waiting in the dressing room, um, or particularly on film. There is, you know, you, you get in makeup, you get there and then you get in makeup immediately and get into your wardrobe and then you sit and you wait and you wait and you wait. And then it's, and then, action and you've got to turn it on real quick after you've sat in a 
stuffy trailer all day. You know, that's part of the job. The money's good. So you, you, you know, you, you do it. And that's part of the business. Um, uh, so it was an exciting time. It, you know, um, it was a really exciting time. And, um, uh, it was an exciting time in our culture for music and for TV. Um, uh, I like the I Love Lucy era, but, you know, I was way too young to, to participate in that. And I think the next best era was the era that I was working in with, La- you know, Laugh-In was on and a lot of stand-up comedy. There was still variety television, which I think is, is so much better than reality television. Well, I heard that you almost didn't do The Hills Have Eyes because your agent said it was such a bad script. <laughs> you can't do this. And I said, well, I'm, you know, I really want to branch uh, out of television. And he said, but it's so badly written, you know, and he had read the script. And, um, and I said, I just feel like I should do this movie. And he, we did not part ways over it. Uh, but, um, he never really would talk to me about it. You know, it was low budget. He didn't want me working uh, for the budget that they, you know, nobody got paid very much to do it and still haven't been paid very much. Uh, but, um, but I really wanted to, you know, try to get from television, um, to the movies. And I had no idea the repercussions would be that, you know, mostly I would end up, you know, I I, I didn't think it would tag me in a horror genre, but, and I've certainly done other kind of films, but I don't think I would have met my husband had it not been for the movie. And uh, he had seen me in The Hills Have Eyes the night before we met at the Troubadour in Hollywood. And he had become a fan that night, and he loved The Hills Have Eyes. So when I walked into the club the very next night after he'd seen the movie at a drive-in, um, uh he asked for my phone number and and uh, just went on and on about the film and what a great screamer <laughs> screamer I was and um, we that we had a thirty one year romance uh, because of the hills have eyes so and he actually took over raising my son so um, so I got you know again another decision. That you don't know why you want to go against the grain or why certain things happen, but it was absolutely life changing that I did this low budget horror movie, which generally wouldn't do anything with your life except be another credit on your resume. You, you know. But it was Wes Craven who actually drew you to the project. I had done, I had done some TV pilots and a lot of work where. It's fast-paced, and the directors had, the, the TV directors were somewhat abusive. Could be, not all, but they can be. Uh, TV is it seems to be a, a nastier medium. If if the joke didn't work, then maybe it was your fault, and and nobody really looked to the writers. You know, it was the actors' fault, and and and. Well, maybe the maybe the writing's not good. You know what I mean? Who knows why it's not working? But 
they could be somewhat abusive. And um, when I met Wes, he's soft-spoken to begin with. And I thought this, he, he was so sweet. And I thought, oh, I would love to work with him because he's soft-spoken and he's sweet. And he seems like such a breath of fresh air from the abuse that goes on in, in the TV world. And, uh, uh, I mean, there's some nice people in television, of course. I'm not, I'm not making generalities, but I had stumbled into working with, with some really not very nice directors in sitcom, and uh, 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 so I felt like it was kind of like, oh, this is so, so much, uh, uh, so much nicer. And uh, and Wes was just a doll. We did some improvisation uh, at the audition, and. Um, uh, he was, I just liked his, uh, demeanor when we were working together. Same with Orrin Pelly, uh, from Paranormal Activity. Um, I, uh, did Area 51 with him and in the audition process, um, he knew exactly what he wanted, exactly what he was looking for, and and threw me off guard by just, you know, I thought maybe there would be some lines or something, and I didn't realize it was just going to be totally an, an improv audition. And um, he's also a very nice person. So, uh, you know, here they are doing horror and scary, gory things, and yet, they're soft-spoken and and very, very kind. Well, the script for The Hills Have Eyes, it seemed to have changed a lot during filming. I read an early draft called Blood Relations. So did the improvisation process influence the way the film went? Well, I don't think that script, the script, they never gave us uh, another script before, besides the one that you read, the Blood Relations script. I never liked the name blood relations and um and i and i think that's what turned off my agent uh maybe had it been named the hills have eyes he wouldn't have been so opposed to it i'm not sure i even and then when they when they renamed it after the film was shot from blood relations uh when they renamed it the hills have eyes i thought mm, that sounds kind of corny to me too um but it's not my place to um give any input about that it just was a mental thing you know and um i uh but it did I guess it ended up being the right name for the movie, um, but the, they never gave us any other script besides the original one. What ended up on the celluloid was what happened in the directing process and the improvisation that takes place in the moment of shooting that particular scene. So we it's not that we rewrote it, it's just that things happen in the scene that words come out or something comes out that's not on the script. And I love to work that way. That's my favorite way to work. Um, I don't, I, I'd rather have a few words and the director say, okay, now this is kind of what I want you to say. Um, and then see what happens after that. Well, that was kind of how he directed, Wes directed. Um, whereas um, uh, in my experience with Oren Pelly, um, he likes you to work, he sets up the scene and then, and he gives you an idea of what he wants 
you to say, but it's pretty, it's pretty imp- mostly improvisation. So you have a new film coming out soon called Cut, in which I understand you play yourself. Yeah, yeah, I play myself, Susan Lanier, former ingenue from The Hills Have Eyes, now grown up, and I'm a horror film director in the movie, and Dee Wallace's biological daughter, Gabrielle Stone, plays my leading lady ingenue, and uh, the... She gets uh, killed in the movie, and uh, but she gets killed after she's come to see my real-life cabaret show, Swamp Cabaret, at the M Bar in Hollywood. So they actually filmed the scene where David Banks is stalking her in the cabaret, and I'm actually on stage with my band from Swamp Cabaret, my CD, my, my band and my music show. So... So I play myself in the movie, which is, I've never done that before. I got the phone call I was waiting for. My agent said the script was a total horror. I didn't care. The hills have us made me a movie star. I'm talking the original, not the is due for a release in October. Friday Night Frights. As the unforgettable character of Trash, the sex-and-death-obsessed punk-turned-zombie in Return of the Living Dead, the actress Linnea Quigley left an indelible impression on every horror movie fan of the 1980s. The role launched Linnea as a B-movie queen. She's appeared in over 50 films, including the legendary Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, Savage Streets, in which she co-starred with Linda Blair, and the abysmal video nasty Don't Go Near the Park. I caught up with Linnea to get the lowdown on her extraordinary career as the most beloved screen queen of her generation. So you've just finished a film called Disciples. It's got an amazing cast. How did you get all of that cast together? Yes, um, I had um, done a film in L.A. with Joe Hollow called Bloodstruck. And it wasn't a huge role. It was Brink Stevens and I had done it. And about a year and a half later, Joe, well, Joe and I talked, but Joe, like, uh, decided he was going to do another film. And so I got on as co-producer with it. And a lot of the people that I knew, like Angus and, you know, some people like that, you know, we, like, went about casting it. Barbara 
Magnolfi, you know, things like that, that we thought would be good. And it kind of really grew. I mean, at first we had, you know, smaller names, and then all of a sudden Tony Todd came on, Bill Mosley, you know, I called Angus, and Angus is is very, very selective. And we're, we are very good friends, and he really loved the script, and he decided to do it, which was a really, really cool thing because he loves Tony Todd, and Tony Todd loves him, and they have this amazing scene together. And so it's it's a really interesting horror story with a lot of characters and a lot of mythology and things like that in it. And you produced a number of films. How did you uh, make the move into producing? Well, I, you know, I was always interested in, you know, the things that go on besides just the acting and wanted to get involved with some of the other aspects of it. And Joe, you know, let me do that. And it's it's like fulfilling because you feel like you're, you know, like really kind of part of it. You know, it's like almost like a family type thing. You know, we filmed in Florida and then we filmed in L.A. And it was just a really great experience to, to be able to have a little bit of creative and, you know, uh, getting people in it that, you know, might not have been in it. Otherwise it was fun to be able to do that and make it come together. And uh, it's a good thing because, you know, we all help each other out, you know. We were just at Monster Palooza, which is a big convention in L.A., and it was, it was really great. What was your experience of working with Charles Band back in 1987? It was really cool because uh, we were, like, it was unusual because uh, he was very young when he started. And usually most of the people were a lot older. And I was just, I think, oh, my gosh, maybe 19 or 20 at the most. And he was either that or a couple of years older. So it was, it was, it was interesting to see someone that young being in it. Now, also, his father was in it and his brother. I mean, I was, like, so new to the business. You know, it was all like, wow, this is interesting. Yeah, I had, you know, it was a very great learning experience, that's for sure. So how did you find working with Fred Olin Ray and Gunnar Hansen on Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers? It was like, now Gunnar, it was, I was like, you know, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of my favorite horror films. So it was like, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm working with, you know, Leatherface. I was like thinking, oh my gosh, I mean, he's going to be mean or something like that. But he was just like such a sweet man. And he did not have any clue that people really thought he was great because he had been in Maine and really had gotten out of the film business. And I encouraged him to do conventions and he was like, oh, nobody's going to care about me. And then, you know, he got back into doing things again, going to conventions, doing some films, 
and things like that. Well, another film that's said to be one of your favourites is Savage Streets, in which you co-starred with Linda Blair. In fact, I was in Boston, like, two weekends ago, and they had a 35-millimeter print. It was a midnight showing, and they outdid um, Kill Bill. There was, uh, I was, like, shocked. There was um, almost a sold-out crowd to see it. And then the next weekend, I went to the Monster Palooza, and they had uh, the the scars, the guy, the guys that were in the movie, the bad guys, and also a couple of the women that were in it. And it was really amazing because I had not seen any of them since that film, and it was like shocking. And again, they did not know it was a real cult classic. I think because it was like a really different part. And I actually had the chance to work with Linda Blair, which was another like, you know, that blew my mind too. It was like, oh my gosh, I'm working with Linda Blair, you know, who, you know, was like, wow, you know, The Exorcist, you know, I was like playing her sister. And it was, um, it was a very, at that time, controversial scene, the rape scene. So um, it's interesting because the movie, you know, did become a cult classic, and uh, it's fun. It's very fun, the music in it, and just the whole 80s vibe is very cool. One of your very early films is a film called Don't Go Near the Park. It's a very strange film. What was the background to that film? Well, the director was very young, and he would go around, I'm the youngest director, and uh, it was it was odd. Just, um, I'd worked with him afterward in Young Warriors and that, but, yeah, this was, he was, I think, 18 or 19 when he did it, which was very young then mm. to work with the, you know, 35 millimeter on everything. Um, and, uh, you know, I give him credit for taking that challenge on, but it is a very, very odd film. Okay, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about Return of the Living Dead. In particular, there's a scene in there in the cemetery, which is pretty infamous. I just wondered, did you feel at the time that you were filming it that you were breaking taboos? I think, you know, especially the dance, I think, I think that, you know, and then just the whole uh, dialogue, you know, about, you know, wanting to die a certain way and stuff. I felt like, you know, I was doing something different, but it's like when you're doing a film, it's really hard to know if it's going to be good or bad. You don't see all the elements you know, because you're in it. So it's hard to tell, you know, oh, you know, I never, never thought, even though I believed in everyone, that it would be such a hit. Do you ever fantasize about being killed? Do you ever wonder about all the different ways of dying? 
you know, violently. I wonder, like, what would be the most horrible way to die? Well, for me, the worst way would be for a bunch of old men to get around me and start fighting and eating me alive. The Return of the Living Dead Special Edition is out now on Blu-ray, and you can read the full interview with Linnea Quigley in issue 377 of Starburst magazine. Friday Night Frights well, that's it for tonight's Friday Night Frights. But don't forget you can reach me via the Starburst website or on Twitter at Starburst underscore mag. Until next time, stay, stay scared. scared. You're right. You're right.